hello to all of you. Welcome to the seminar on examining the state of community-led development. My name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I am the Director of Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and it's a pleasure to have all of you with us for, for this event today. Although the idea of empowering communities in their own development is certainly not new, this movement for uh, community-led uh, uh, development of which IFPRI is, a very, uh, is very pleased to be a member, was formed around the time the Sustainable Development Goals were launched. Given the realization that integrated action also at the local level is seen as critical in meeting quite a number of the SDGs. Today, we'll take a deeper dive into a report on the state of community-led development programming prepared by a collaborative research team which provides the current landscape of community-led development practice in projects carried out in no less than 65 countries. Before we turn to our distinguished speakers, it's my pleasure to invite Ruth Meinson dick to give some opening remarks. Ruth is a senior research fellow in IFPRI's uh, Environment and Production Technology Division and has a keen interest in gender issues in agriculture. She has followed the movement for community-led development since its inception. Thanks so much for opening up the, the seminar for us, Ruth. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to invite the Community-Led Development Initiative back to IFPRI. As someone who's done a lot of research on participatory processes, I find the topic of community-led development important but also important to go beyond just treating it as a panacea. We need to take a careful look at what happens under what conditions and what are the tensions that arise in all of this. I was one of several IFRI staff who were involved with the CLD initiative early on, and we hosted an IFRI policy seminar on this. It seems like eons ago, back when we could still have lunch together. <laughs> So it's great now, even though we can't be all together in person, to see how this study of community-led development has developed. I certainly found some surprises in the report, but I don't want to steal their thunder by saying more about that now. I'm sure we'll get into some of this in the discussion. Um, what I do want to comment on is the overall approach of this project. Uh, it has been a multi-organizational study with different types of organizations around the world coming together to figure out, first of all, what information they need and then what information is needed for a broader landscape of, of work in this area. And then how to put that information together. Practitioners have been very much involved throughout the process along with researchers. How to put all this together is not something that they teach you in research methods classes, but it has a very important value, especially in terms of getting materials and research to be used. As you'll hear, the community-led development assessment tool has been downloaded hundreds of times and is already being applied in many different organizations. I don't want to take more time now so that we have, have a really rich discussion, but we are looking forward to your questions and to learning more about this. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Ruth, for teeing up uh, what is going to be indeed a very interesting conversation. Um, before we turn to our speakers, let me make sure that you know how to contact us with your questions, because there will be a Q&A session uh, that will follow. And please submit your questions, indicate uh, to whom you would like to ask that question to, if you have a particular person, and you can submit your questions on ifpre.org. Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag uh, AskIfPri on Twitter. So now let's turn to our three speakers. I'm going to introduce each one of them and then they will uh, take it from there. We begin with Gunjan Verda, who is a public policy and international development strategist and a gender policy specialist. As senior advisor, global collaborative research and public policy in the movement for community-led uh, development, she coordinates a multi-organizational uh, research team on both the practice, which we'll hear about today, and the impact of community-led development, which is work yet to come. Gunjan is also the research lead for the study. She'll provide an overview of, um, of the movement for community-led development, as well as the impetus behind this report. Next, we will then turn to Martha Cruz Zuniga, who is the chair of economics at Catholic University, and she serves on the, uh, the Movement for Community-Led Development Scoping Group. She, in turn, will speak about the methodology behind and the process of drawing up this report. And then last but not least, uh, we will hear from Holta Trentafili. Um, she is the Research, Learning, and Analytics Manager at World Vision USA. And she is also the chair of uh, the scoping group uh, overseeing this, this report. And she will then highlight the key findings of this overview uh, of community-led program. So without further ado, uh, we will kick off this series of three great speakers. Uh, and thank you for starting us off, Gunjan. Thank you, Charlotte. And it's a pleasure to be here at IFPRI and to share our research. Uh, as Charlotte mentioned, it's going to be in three parts. We're going to start with purpose and structure of the research, delve into methodology, and into the most interesting part, the findings. Uh, but before that, I'm, actually, I'm currently in Toronto and in Canada, as in many parts of the world, it is customary to begin with the land acknowledgement. So I want to begin by honoring all the indigenous communities, past and present, who have inhabited and nurtured the lands on which all of us are. We humbly thank you. Can we move to the next slide, please? The movement for community-led development, as Ruth mentioned, and I think Charlotte mentioned at the beginning, was launched on the same day that the Sustainable Development Goals were announced at the UN General Assembly. A group of organizations got together and we said, this is wonderful, but the only way we're going to achieve the SDGs is if we put communities front and center in development. Today, we are a group of 72 INGOs and over 1,500 local civil society organizations from all over the world. The Hunger Project serves as the global secretariat for the movement. We have a number of national chapters and then we have thematic working groups. So the national chapters are groups of local organizations who get together and they advocate with their government for devolution of power, but also for their shared goals and objectives. And the Global Secretariat provides support as needed and does advocacy at the global level with multinational and other donors. So as we go around, you know, speaking to donors, implementing organizations, multilaterals, bilaterals, governments, about why every person has a right to a voice in decisions that affect their lives, the question we often heard was that 
yeah, this sounds great. What is the evidence that it works? And so if we go to the next slide, please. In 2019, we decided to look at the evidence of what happens when we put communities front and center in development. We wanted to understand the human change process that takes place. And we decided to begin with our own members because we represent a wide range of organizations, geographies, and working styles. So as I, was, I began to call up the monitoring and evaluation directors of different organizations asking for the evaluation reports. And I got the same reaction from every one of them. This is great. Uh, we are happy to share our evaluation reports. They'll tell you nothing about the impact of CLT. And that was a shock. But I realized that everybody was struggling with the same problem frustration. And that is that our evaluation methods really do not capture the impact of something that is as complex, as multidimensional, and as nonlinear as community-led development. And so we added the second research question. So we started with how, why, and under what circumstances does community-led development result in improved development outcomes? And we added, how do we adapt existing methodologies to measure the impact of CLT? And we invited our partners to join us. 35 people from 23 different organizations volunteered and the collaborative research team was born. If you move to the next slide, please. But even as we were doing this, we realized that though we were a movement for CLD, there was no common understanding of what is community-led development, you know, what does it look like in practice? And so the work before us was really, we couldn't move to impact directly. We had to do some foundational work. We divided ourselves into three groups. The scoping group whose work we'll see today started with the fundamental question of what do we mean by community-led development? What are its characteristics? How does it appear in the life cycle of a program? And what are organizations doing when they say they're doing CLD? In other words, are we putting communities front and center in development? And if so, how? The impact subgroup, as the name suggests, was to look at the medium, short, and long-term impacts of CLD. And the evaluation subgroup was to explore the question of impact, but also look at adapting evaluation methodologies. Now, despite our diversity in terms of nationalities, geographies, everything, organizations, we were all a group of practitioners, but we wanted to make sure that the research was rigorous. And so we had an advisory group of experts, academic and practitioners who could guide us, question us and ensure quality control. And I'm so glad that one of them is actually on the panel with us today, Scott. If we go to the next slide. So in January this year, we released three things. We finished the first phase of our research and we released three things. First, a report on unpacking community-led development, which is a study of 173 programs across 65 countries. That's what you'll hear about today. But in doing this, you know, we had to develop instruments, right, to do the study. So we developed a tool that would look at an instrument that would look really at how the CLD unfold in the life cycle of a program. And then we looked at the tool to look at the quality of the evaluation reports for when we do the impact study. Because evaluations for CLD programs are not just about rigor. They're also about being true to the principles of community-led development. They cannot be extractive. And so we took these two instruments out for feedback in November of 2019. And the reaction across the board was, your research is great. Keep us posted. Let us know when the study comes. Tell us more about the tools and your instruments. And we realized that there was such a need 
that people really wanted to understand how to operationalize CLD and how to do it well. And so we went back, we consulted way more people across the board in different countries, we piloted, we tested multiple rounds. And you see the two tools that we launched, the CLD assessment tool, to look at how community-led programs are at different stage in, the in their life cycles and how can they become more community-led and the quality appraisal tool for CLD evaluations. They're both available on the website in uh, English and French currently. I want to end by saying three things. One, that you know, this research was completely not funded by any donor. So this was all pro bono work that we did. Two, that this was really an exercise in learning by doing. We began this research to understand the practice of CLD so that we could improve it. But in the course of the debate and the discussions as we were going about this, we learned so much about our own practice of CLD and the change happened even as we were doing the research. And third, if we can go to the next slide, please. This was a very diverse team. We started with 35 people. We, you know, we had many more joining in. I wish I could show everybody's names and images here, I can't, but I did want to share the core team behind this report and the tools, uh, the CLD assessment tool. And with this, I will let my colleague, Martha, take us through the methodology of this study that we are sharing today. Martha, over to you. Thank you, Gunjan. Next slide, please. So as Gunjan mentioned, in this report, we assess the presence of CLD characteristics and how they vary with context, program length, funding, focus, and activities. Two questions guided our inquiry. The first, what are organizations doing as part of their CLD programming? And the second, how does the nature of CLD programming vary with context? Please keep in mind, we did not look at impact. Instead, we wanted to understand the current CLD practices of organizations in order to create a landscape of CLD programming. Next slide, please. In terms of methodology, um, to do this analysis, to conduct this analysis for our methodology, we use a meta-analysis review of existing evidence about community-led development initiatives. This was achieved by collecting 419 documents that were provided by 29 members of the Movement for Community-Led Development about programs these members identified as community-led. The decision tree on the screen illustrates the process conducted to clean the database. Baseline reports and reports that contain too little information to distinguish the presence of CLD and also reports where Ultimately, we find they have no characteristics of CLD were uh, removed from the database. Additionally, there were a few organizations that were um, overly represented in the sample. So randomly, we discarded some of these reports in order to have a more representative uh, sample of reports. At the end of this cleaning process, our final database contained 173 reports representing programs across 65 countries. For the process of working with the data from these reports, we use a data extraction process. First, we use our newly developed data extraction tool, and Kunjang mentioned about that, that included program information and characteristic sections, and also the CLD rubric. This rubric was developed prior to our meta-analysis and identifies 11 characteristics, which were created following a process of inductive reasoning. We then collapse these characteristics into nine dimensions that you will see in the next slide, please. 
these nine dimensions guided our research. They are participation, inclusion and voice, local resources, sustainability and exit strategies, accountability, responsiveness to context, collaboration, working with subnational governments, monitoring and evaluation processes, and facilitation. The review of reports was independently conducted by three different groups. We had a lead researcher. We also have a group of professionals with expertise in CLD that were also reviewing part of these reports. And then we also have a group of student researchers who underwent training on the principles of CLD and the use of the data extraction tool. Interrated reliability was used to check reviewer bias and the robustness of the CLD rubric. We checked the joint probability of agreement between the professionals and the research lead, which was 73%, and also checked the joint probability of agreement between the students' researchers and the research lead, which was 70%. Given the satisfactory inter-rater reliability scores that we obtained, we decided to use the research lead scores for the data analysis in this report. In addition to a single dimension analysis, the research team looked at cross tabulations and cross correlations to identify trends associated with CLD presence. Next slide, please. Our study has some limitations. We do acknowledge um, some of them here that are present. The documents we analyzed were all self-submitted documents. They are not thus necessarily representative of all programming activity in CLD. Additionally, the sample was limited to mostly English reports and to reports from members of the community and led development. There is also a considerable degree of variation in focus and on purpose in the documents, and thus this may not necessarily reflect CLD intent. Considering these limitations, it is also important to remember that absence of evidence doesn't mean evidence of absence. Lastly, please remember that the findings of the report do not claim any correlation between the presence of CLD characteristics in a program and the program's impact. Now, um, our colleague Kolta is going to talk about our findings. Thank you, Marta. We'll go over a few of the findings drawn from the reports um, in our sample. As you heard, the reviewed reports represent uh, 173 programs and uh, that span across 65 countries. Can you show the slide, please? About half of the reports were endline evaluations slightly less than half, about 45%, used a mixed method approach in their methodology. Most study programs had multiple focuses, and we selected up to three priority focuses, focus areas per report. The overall uh, top three focuses were health, gender, and economic empowerment. Next slide, please. In the study, we also identified six types of community-led development programs based on their principal focus and activity. The two most predominant types of programs were service delivery focus, about 36% of the programs, and service delivery and empowerment focused, about 27% of the sample. Service delivery focused programs were considered those that use community-led development processes to ensure that services reach the right people in the right manner and are used appropriately. 
Examples of this would include uh, community volunteers who promote preventive health behaviors and consultations with community members to identify things like um, uh, who are the most vulnerable or the best design for toilets or schools uh, to be constructed. These projects are not devoid of capacity development, but limit that to the knowledge required to carry out those functions effectively. I often think of this as community development programs rather than community-led ones. Whereas the service uh, delivery and agency or empowerment focused programs sought to build uh, agency among participants to ensure appropriate services met the community defined goals. Compared to just service delivery programs where the focus is decided by the funder or the implementing um, NGO, in these programs, the CLD processes are used to encourage communities to prioritize needs or designs or redesign the appropriate then service delivery programs that will be delivered. Um, for the rest of the descriptions of this uh, types of programs, we have a lot more in the report. Can we go to the next uh, slide, please? Well, let's start with some good news. On average, program reports uh, report six out of nine dimensions in our rubric. Participation, inclusion, and voice were present in about 92% of the reports and facilitation in over 97% of the reports. As you can see, accountability was the least present dimension followed by sustainability and the CLD congruent uh, monitoring and evaluation practices. Now let's peel off that um, good news a little bit. When we dig deeper, we see that the subcomponent-wise analysis of the dimensions revealed that despite the high presence of participation and facilitation uh, in our reports, they, the reports themselves contained very little evidence of these dimensions' specific aspects. For instance, only 40% of the program documents reported that community plays a role throughout the project life cycle in needs assessments or program design. Less than 11% of the um, study reports show any evidence of flexibility in facilitation to meet the community needs. Next slide, please. There are three highlights that we wanted to draw attention to. Firstly, it's on program duration. On average, uh, CLD programs in our study ran for five years. 45% of them for less than three years. Worth noting that many short programs were in communities where the implementing organizations or its partners had already been present throughout um, other projects. Despite this, there, is, there was still a clear correlation between program duration and the presence of CLD characteristics. Programs running for three or less years showed fewer CLD characteristics than those running, let's say, for seven years or more. And these results uh, were statistically significant. Programs funded privately, including investors, child sponsorship, crowdfunding, ran much longer durations than others, perhaps because they are not subject to funder uh, restrictions. And maybe a last point on this is that the US um, government was the largest funder, uh, funder of the programs that we analyzed, followed by the Department of, for International Development, formerly uh, DFID. Now um, a few highlights on inclusion. While almost all reports scored on the presence of participation and inclusion, the good news, the qualitative analysis revealed that inclusion was limited to the participation of women or people living in extreme uh, poverty for most of the programs. 
unless they focus on specific vulnerable groups like people with disability or refugees, programs did not unpack how marginalized groups were participating in their programs. Notably missing were the LGBTQ communities, people with disabilities, and people belonging to religious and ethnic minorities. Moreover, 36% uh, of the documents did not have any gender component in their programming or evaluation. On an interesting side, programs with youth participants reported a much higher presence of CLD characteristics. Now, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the community groups. Over 80% of the programs in the study reported working through existing or new community groups. Programs that created new community groups or worked with local government functionaries and community leaders showed a significantly higher CLD characteristics than those that did not. Next slide, please. Here, what you'll see is that programs that focused on governance reported up to 20% and uh, to put it plainly, almost two more CLD characteristics, while those that focused on health reported about 17% more CLD characteristics. On the other hand, programs that focused on economic empowerment reported much fewer characteristics than the, uh, the other two. The difference in presence of the CLD characteristics in various programs may be attributed to many reasons, including reporting requirements, funders focus. Therefore, um, this needs to be taken with a grain of salt. About 54% of the study sample though, uh, was comprised of programs that were considered integrated. And by that we mean co-located or multiple sector, sectoral interventions or sectoral interventions that looked, uh, at, took a holistic approach. These programs reported a much higher presence of CLD characteristics. Many of the governance and health programs fell in this category. While the economic empowerment programs were often single sector, um, they would uh, be of the type that would fall under capacity development or service delivery programs and with much shorter um, uh, durations. Now let's move to a few recommendations. First, the study reveals that reports for CLD programs and evaluations provide very little information on what makes them CLD. More specifically, accountability, sustainability, community-based monitoring or or evaluation and feedback loops are mostly missing from program evaluation reports. Details about the nature of participation and facilitation or adaptability are rarely available. Community resources when discussed are primarily in the context of community contribution in, um, the, in program implementation. Few reports speak about building on community knowledge. Um, most evaluations focus on thematic indicators, which are often determined by organizational priorities or grants. Thus, the evaluations of most CLD programs contain very little information that will distinguish them from other programming or enable them to, impact the, um, to unpack the impact of the CLD. Secondly, the, this is the first study and it highlights many areas for need um, of further exploration. Most importantly, we need to include uh, in more direct primary research, the communities um, and um, um, participants in the process to determine CLD and how they view their programs uh, from their own perspective. 
to truly shift the power in international um, development and fulfill our aspirational for sustainable local, locally led development, donors and implementing organizations need to align better how uh, CLD programs and evaluation, uh, evaluations are reported. We are recommending that we, uh, that we use our tools that we developed and these are collaboratively developed tools that can be, that if adopted can help us improve the practice. Gunjan, can you now share with us what lies ahead? And hopefully we have recruited enough people to join us in our efforts and um, join and contribute to this effort. Thank you, Holta. So what's next for us? Well, kind of ongoing. In September last year, we began to now look at the question of impact, which you know we had moved to phase two. So we are currently undertaking a rapid realist review which looks at how, why, and under what circumstances, just two specific aspects of CLD. So we are looking at facilitation and community leadership. How do they lead to improved resilience, equity, and thereby food security? So again, trying to understand this human change process that takes place and why it happens. We are doing this in partnership with Charles Darwin University. And this time we actually do have funding from USAID for this. The results are going to be out in September, so stay tuned. I'm sure for this community, that's going to be very interesting. Uh, we are also going to go forward with the metasynthesis, looking at the broader impact of CLD. So the rapid realist review would answer the high, how, why, and under what circumstances question. And this study would look at the what question of what is the impact. We have been, uh, you know, and then the question that came up with all the people that we were speaking to about adapting evaluation methodologies to be more congruent with the complexity of CLD, right? And with its principles, really. So that's also ongoing. Finally, um, the report is on our website. It's uh, open for feedback till the 15th of April. We also have uh, the tools on the website, as Ruth mentioned, that they've been downloaded in hundreds. We've had over 500 downloads just of the CLD assessment tools. And through this year, we are doing workshops, we are doing gatherings with organizations as they use these tools to understand, you know, what, these are living instruments. So we want to make sure we improve them. So we want to welcome feedback, we want to welcome comments, and we want to encourage anybody who is interested to join us because this is collaborative. We've had new people joining throughout, bringing in new energy, new ideas, and making sure that we reflect what's happening on the ground. So join us. Thank you, Charlotte. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Gunjan, Marta, and Holta for that uh, uh, very uh, uh, comprehensive overview of the work you've done and what you uh, will do next. A reminder to our audience, please go ahead and submit your questions because we'll get to the Q&A after the discussants um, make some comments. And uh, just a reminder, you can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or you can use the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So now it's, a, uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce Scott Guggenheim, who will serve as our first discussant today. Um, I think we're very privileged to have him with us. It's also a late hour in Jakarta. Um, Scott is the adjunct professor for global human development at the Walsh School of Foreign Service uh, in, at Georgetown University. 
Scott is a very influential figure in community-led development and an architect of the path-breaking um, Kekamatan development program in Indonesia. And I understand he was also uh, very involved in several CLD projects in Afghanistan. Scott, we're so pleased that you can provide your feedback and, and thoughts on, on this uh, report. Over to you. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, and apologies for being so late at night from uh, my end. And I just want to say that um, it's been a long time since I've been in touch with uh, CGIIR system. And it's a real pleasure to be in touch with people again. I, I began my career uh, doing farming systems research under the amazing Jacqueline Ashby in um, SIAT in Colombia. So it's a bit ironic to be speaking here 40 years later on a topic whose seed actually was started uh, in the very same CGIAR. So I think by and large that we're on a, a really critical cusp and this report brings out many of the most important messages about the CLD movement overall. The community development fits into a broad question of how can we restore agency back into development? And it's built from a recognition that people are always embedded in social and cultural relationships and that these matter for the choices they make. The trick of what CLD has been able to do has been able to translate an abstract discussion of political philosophy into concrete operational practices for development on both very large as well as very small scales. CLD offers one tool, it's not the only tool, but it's an important tool for complementing formal systems uh, through community mobilization, local knowledge and political activism. And I wanna start my comments on the paper by using some Indonesia data about how they were able to use CLD as part of the response to the COVID pandemic. If since 2012, Indonesia has gone full bore for social protection using proxy means testing and formal social registries with cash transfers and multiple randomized control trials on looking for better targeting. Even so, COVID quickly overwhelmed that entire system. And to its credit, the government responded by letting its national CLD program join the response, but with a rule. The rule was, is that they could only use CLD for households who couldn't get any other program. Um, uh, that missed all the other social safety net operations. Well, let me tell you, within six weeks, the CLD response was able to reach 8 million households, 3.7 million of which were headed by women, who we can assume were among the very poorest of the poor. Now think about that. 3.7 million desperately poor households missed by every single social safety net were picked up by the CLD programs. That brings me to this very important and very rigorous, but also very challenging and long overdue study. For me, it's headline finding is that if CLD is going to move into the development mainstream, which I think it should, we need a much better sense of what it can and what it cannot do. And that means better evaluations. Since time is short, let me give five specific takeaways from the report um, that, that the report gave to me. The first of these is that this difference between projects and strategies. Frontline CLD programs are good at recognizing how complex the local political economy is, but frontline CLD programs never seem to be part of broader reform strategies. They're, they're one-off single purpose type projects, and I think we pay a price for that. The second is, is that most of the local organizations that are involved in the actual delivery of CLD clearly aren't using formal monitoring and evaluation in any part of their management system. Uh, the report makes it pretty clear that the formal evaluation instruments are really to satisfy donors than they are things that the organizations themselves are using in their day-to-day -day management. The third point is that the standard evaluation metrics that we use for large projects, things like financial sustainability, cost-benefit cost benefit analysis, overhead versus delivery costs, 
are obviously not the right ones to be using for small COD projects, but we use them anyway. And that's what we report on. Meanwhile, variables that almost certainly matter more like organizational resilience, quality of community embeddedness, or access to broader networks, which are what COD programs on the frontline use, are things that donors actually aren't very interested in. The fourth point follows from that, which is I think Johnny Fox at AU has done pretty good work uh, showing how few of the indicators that donors think are talking about participation and engagement are actually reflecting what they really do. That is to say, they're slippery indicators that don't, uh, that don't indicate what we think they do. So when we evaluate them, we can show that there is or isn't participation, but the variable isn't reflecting what participation actually is. And the last point I think is a really critical one that Gunjan brought up was that both CLD practitioners and their donors work from project timeframes uh, that are extremely short and they're not even remotely aligned with the kind of exclusion and poverty problems that they work on, all of which demand long-term change. Just imagine if we were talking about programs to end domestic violence or redress racial injustice in the United States and tried measuring them after two years of implementation. But that's exactly what we're doing with these CLD programs. So the report is pretty clear that there's a very big misalignment at play here. I think Gunjan and, and her team have done a great job laying the foundations for a more rigorous analysis, but we have to recognize that we're at the beginning of a real analytic framework, not really finding results that you can draw generalizable or policy-based conclusions from. We've seen the potential, but now it's time, as Gunjan says, it's time to get on with the real work. Um, and the report is good for me at least, as much by what it doesn't show as what it does show. So thank you very much and thank you to the team. Thank you, Scott. Very astute comments. And, and I love the work that you did uh, or the, the work you reported on in Indonesia, how CLD stepped in to help uh, with the COVID crisis. Uh, very, very interesting. IFPRI is about to release uh, a, a big, uh, uh, our flagship publication for this year is in fact on uh, responses to the COVID crisis. So we talk quite a lot about uh, whether uh, people were picked up by existing social protection regimes or not. And of course that varies by country uh, to country, but great to hear that that worked out well in Indonesia with CLD really playing such an important role. Um, let me now turn um, to another uh, IFPRI speaker. Uh, she will serve as our second discussant, uh, Neha Kumar. She is a senior research uh, fellow here at IFPRI for the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division. Her recent work includes a review of a number of projects pertaining to women's groups and drawing lessons from those projects with regard to community-led development. Uh, Nea, thank you so much for joining us and over to you. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, first of all, I would like to congratulate the team on this very important report. I cannot agree more with what Scott just said and it's actually really hard to follow uh, a speaker like him. But I think it's a, this report is an important step towards understanding what community-led development projects are and how they can improve lives. So I will offer a few reflections on this project as, as they relate to some of the work that I have been involved in around women's group-based projects in South Asia. The report has many pertinent uh, findings, but because I have five minutes and a lot has been already said, I will focus on four key, uh, four points that I thought are key and, and need further uh, uh, research. So the report mentions, can we go to the next slide, please? Thanks. So, so the report mentions that the findings and lessons are limited by the information at hand and that many project documents don't actually uh, provide details on the project or its approach um, 
in, in a, into recent reviews uh, on evidence around women's group-based in programs, we find a similar knowledge gap. So very few studies go into details of the project. Um, very few talk about the theory of change, the impact pathways. And as a result, if it is important to highlight this because if these are not thought about, not documented, it is highly unlikely that they will be um, measured. And that's what we find in our review. So, and, I, and we know as they say, what gets measured gets done. So I think it's, this is a great time to turn this limitation into an opportunity by collecting more data, testing this, this evidence, perhaps uh, through phone, uh, phone as, as it is the case these days, uh, and validating these tests. I, I hear from the team that, that some of this is already at play. Next slide, please. Um, another finding that I found interesting and also something that we saw in our work is that program focus has implications for uh, the degree of CLD of a project. So for example, uh, the report noted that programs that focused on health and governance issues were scored higher on, the, on CLD score as compared to say programs that focused on economic empowerment. Um, health and governance issues are community issues. They affect the community at large. They are affected by local institutions and service providers. So in some sense, they are, they are like more like public goods. And so therefore it's easier to mobilize communities around uh, these uh, objectives as opposed to economic empowerment, which may be more excludable um, and private in nature. So an important um, an interesting testable hypothesis that's come, that comes out is, are certain um, focus areas better aligned with the objectives of community-led development projects? Next slide, please. A third finding, um, the third is a finding about women and gender that my senior colleagues at IFPRI, Ruth included, have been talking about for years, which is, by, by including women is not equal to uh, having gender sensitive programming. So the report finds that a large majority of the projects targeted women, women were highly likely to participate, but at the same time, very few projects actually report gender as a priority, um, either for their program or for their evaluation objectives. Perhaps improving gender uh, norms or gender relations was not an objective, but we will really not know un until it's, it's well documented. Again, it kind of goes back to the first point that I mentioned. Um, next slide, please. So before I go on to the next point, I will just read this phrase from the report, which I really enjoyed reading. It says, data was only disaggregated by gender. I think this is a great progress um, and, and something that has been stressed all of my professional career and it continues. All right, so, so the last but not the least, the, program, the, the, report the report says that other marginalized groups were underrepresented by communities uh, in, these, in these projects. Can you, can you click through Katarla once more? Um, so, I would actually urge the team to understand why of this finding. Are, are programs locating in areas where groups are underrepresented? Are they excluded due to, due to elite capture? Uh, or are there other barriers to participation? 
and again, I mean, we will, or is it mainly a reporting issue? And if that is the case, then maybe perhaps we need another broken record of rec- recommendations that we must um, uh, talk about, gen- report on gender, uh, on not gender, but uh, other marginalized groups uh, as well. So in closing, I would just like to, again, congratulate the team and encourage them to take this forward, gather more data, test, validate the tool so that community-led development projects around the world have a harness in the team's own words uh, for documenting and assessing these complex programs. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neha. We are now uh, going to open our Q&A session. We've, we've had already a number of questions coming in. Please keep them coming. Um, I'm going to start off um, with one question from an anonymous uh, questioner. And then just a heads up, Ruth, I'm going to ask you to come in next because you teed us all up by saying you wanted to make some comments on the report. Um, so the first question, I think, is a really, really pertinent question. So, so this questioner asks, the involvement of the community itself in your own study. Um, uh, so th- that, that, I think, is a great question. So uh, maybe we'll, we'll uh, direct that to you, Gunjan. That is a great question. And that is also the limitation that we said in our report, that this was secondary research. It wasn't funded. We did not have the resources to go to the field. Uh, so we were completely dependent on the information which was available in the reports. So yes, we did not have community voices directly in this. We recognize that as a limitation. And our hope is that this is going to open up the way for primary research where we can directly go to communities. In fact, that's the first thing the report opens with, saying that we need to go to communities and we need to understand that what is it that they think of when they say community-led development? Does it matter? What do they want? And what do they feel? And how do they feel about these projects and their success? Thanks. Uh, 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 let me turn to Ruth. Uh, Ruth, maybe just give <laughs> two or three of your your most uh, important observations on this on this very very interesting work. So, uh, following on Neha's comments, also one of the interesting things is that uh, such heavy involvement of women in this to the point where there are concerns that this is adding to women's burden. I'm wondering how that was achieved, given that in so many of these contexts, um, women are constrained from occupying public spaces of decision making. And so what specifically, and I didn't quite understand all, and I know going off of so many studies, it's hard to say what did these um, CLD projects do that actually increased the involvement of women. Um, how did that come about? And how, you know, um, be, and was that a real, um, they are in charge of decision-making or is this women come together to, to do the service delivery on a voluntary basis that we can't fund elsewhere? To be a little bit provocative. Is that a question maybe for Gunjan or uh, for? Uh, I, so perhaps Gunjan and then um, I'd like Scott maybe to reflect on that too from some of his experiences. Um, and 
whether that's specific to uh, women or Scott referred to these relationships, what kinds of things were done to um, across the projects? Um, okay, so uh, excellent question. And again, I think one of our challenges was that how little information there was in the reports on any of this. All, yes, women were mentioned. Yes, women were participants, but that was really all the reports said. It was often through community groups. And the idea was you bring women to meetings, you bring, you know, you create these self-help groups, you create microfinance and other groups, or you create, you know, community health workers groups, you bring women into that. The process of it, how they overcome the structural barriers for women to do so. Where did women find the time to do that, you know? None of this information was actually there in these reports. And, and I'm talking not just of the 173 in the study, but the over 400 reports that we initially got and went through. So that's a big missing piece, Ruth. Uh, and I am very curious to hear what Scott has to say about the process from my actual experience. But the study reports do not talk about it specifically at all. And I don't know if my team wants to add anything to it. Scott, why don't we uh, get your input? I'm not sure I can answer this in the 30 seconds it takes for, uh, to actually give a reply, but I can make a, a couple of very quick observations. So, so one would begin from the work in Afghanistan, which has got to be the single worst place on the face of the earth for women's participation in public spaces, where there, we, we, the National Solidarity Program, which we started in 2002 and is still going across the country, reports that they have about 45% women's participation. So how are they actually able to do that? Well, it's not as if all the tribal elders got together and said, it's time for a change. The constitution says women have equal rights. Let's get them all in public space. There, it's very much about program rules. If you want the money, right, then there have to be uh, meetings with women. And I think there's a lot of this that goes on, that donors put that in there, that you have to have women involved. And that's why I brought up that question, slippery indicators, that just because women showed up in a meeting doesn't mean that they actually had any real decision-making power. So that's on the formal state structured side where donors have direct, direct access. A second reason is, is that a lot of what CLD things have been doing and in, um, in many parts of the area of the data set that Gunjan's working from are things that have a lot to do with household budgeting and household responsibilities where they can push the burden onto women and they don't get the public uh, reaction from men. That would be that if women decide to build a bridge across the river, uh, and it was only women who would get to make that choice, they would get quite a backlash. When it's about health, when it's about nutrition, microfinance, there's a lot more scope for involving women in those things. Now, let me just close with one other thing. This, like I said, much too short a time to get into this. But, but one thing I did notice in that, again, the East Timor case was particularly interesting, where UN women came in and said, we have to have women's quotas, that women will pick who their representatives are and public funds will go towards the women. It took less than a month for the Timorese government to say, we've already had so many divisions in our country that we don't need any more, and they threw them all out. At the same time, the COD project that was going on there also had a requirement for women to be elected, but men had to elect the women also, right? And so there never was a problem with that. 30% of the programs were all going to women all across East Timor in this post-conflict environment. So I do think some micro-attention to the rules and the details of how it's done matter a lot, but that requires a lot more about context and understanding both sides of that equation. The unequal part, which is about donors and delivery, 
and then the social context of what, where, do the, where are the boundaries of the rules? Indonesia, it's a lot easier because women are involved in production and, and, and marketing, and they have been for 3,000 years. In Afghanistan, they've been locked up behind walls and saying there have to be women in public spaces is a much bigger shock. Um, and you can do it. There's some of the areas in South Afghanistan even have women shuras, but you know that in the next six months when Taliban come back, that's gonna be the very first thing that disappears. So I just don't think there's a generic answer to this question. Thank you. That's uh, that's a lot to think about. And I, I think this question, which was also highlighted in the report about women's time poverty uh, is, is also an important consideration in, 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 in this discussion. Um, we, we have a question here from Dr. Mughal from Pakistan, and uh, I think maybe this goes well uh, for you, Scott, given your, your work in Afghanistan. Um, the question is, how does community-led development initiative, or how do community-led development initiatives take place in tribes where they have social issues and enmity? Well, let me say a couple of words and then give it back to the team. It's their study, <laughs> right? But, but, but in, in, in highly polarized areas, um, and Afghanistan is a perfect example of that, we didn't find that the tribal structure was actually the problem. It was the approach you took to dealing with tribal authority and how forceful people were going to be. So Afghanistan is, is a interesting example because every step of that was grounded in the Afghan constitution and, and supported by the Afghan government, right? It wasn't a donor coming in and saying, you have to have women here. So, so the laws that they had all sort of signed up for already said that a goal of the government is to have women in public space. So the question wasn't, should you do it? It was how you do it. And there, the, I think Brigitte, who's on your study, um, was, was one of the leaders in working through how do you deal with tribal authorities and issues a combination of spend a lot of time with the tribal elders explaining it, making sure you have enough sort of religious support from the ulama that they think it's okay for this to do, and a certain amount of financial engineering. So in the deep south of Afghanistan, the groups that said, sorry, we're not interested in having women now, would pay, I think it was a 15% penalty. They got 15% less and said, do whatever you want, but there's going to be less money because women aren't participating. And over time, that would change, right? They would say, what if, what if we just invite them just for one meeting and we put up a barrier all around them? Because for a lot of those tribes, the issue wasn't women per se as much as protection of the women uh, in the public space. So, so as long as you have the local knowledge and the facilitators, I think there's much more scope than people realize than when you start putting in hard and fast rules and very formal indicators, but without the means to turn them into practical actions. I'm not going to pretend that this is easy or that Afghanistan's working well, but it's not as bad as people think it is. Thank you. Uh, let, let me turn to um, to Marta and Holta with, uh, and I'm going to combine a few questions. I think there are questions coming in from several uh, participants about which program CLD is actually most effective for or where it's applied the most. So, so one question asks is whether these tools are being applied to environment management uh, focused interventions beyond health, gender, and economic empowerment. And a second question asked, uh, it would be interesting to explore applying the CLD tool, and perhaps it is already being applied in this regard, to environmental programs. Um, and a question about integrated programs. What, what is the role of CLD in integrated programs? So, so maybe I could turn to, to the two of you to, to address, uh, you know, maybe 
again go over this the findings from your report where did you find cld most embedded and and where should it perhaps also be embedded Walter, i think you can comment on the findings sure um there were some projects that were envi environmental uh focused um it's a i Gujan, you can correct me. I think it's about 10% um, of them. So they were on the lower end. Um, we only dealt with what we were given, essentially. So the majority of the programs were for sure health, as we said, governance. Uh, there was food security, um, gender, um, education, humanitarian assistance um, specific. And then, as I said, about 10% of, uh, uh, of the programs were environmental uh, focused. When we used the, uh, the, the CLD assessment uh, tool, we applied it across all of the programs equally. We did not pick up um, the CLD characteristics as strongly as we did in the, in the uh, areas that we already mentioned, which were health and, um, and governance. Um, but the, the tools can be used for, uh, for sure for this type of programs too. Uh, in our group, when we develop the tool, we have several members that do come with that particular background. And that is um, one of the reasons why there is um, one of the elements was about like local resources use, um, the focus on sustainability. Um, so those folks that came from that background were able to provide input so that the rubric that we developed uh, brought in that lens from the environmental perspective. Um, I would urge actually that every sector and every topic uh, uses the tools and gives us feedback of how it applies to them. We're at a stage right now that we only used it within uh, the programs that we were given. But we recognize that if we wanted to make it more a movement about um, community-led development, as well as understand how it can be applied across sectors, we need um, those organizations, those activists that pertain to that uh, group to start using the tools and give feedback. These are not our tools. They are not labeled. I work for World Vision. There, there is no World Vision logo in there. There is no Catholic University. The logo is of movement for community-led development. So we can all participate and uh, contribute um, to their utility. And they are adaptable. We can change them. We can change based on your feedback. Super. Marta, did you want to comment as well? I would like to add with respect to the programs that are multi-sectoral. So in our research, we had to pick um, the most relevant sectors, let's call it. And so up to the researchers definition of that. So up to three areas could be selected. So it's possible that some of them were skipped in the process. But on the other hand, we have three themes reviewing the same reports in order to have a greater degree of um, standardization in the process. So the tools we have developed um, do account for the fact that programs may be working on different sectors. And the way it was implemented shows that it's possible for people who have no previous training or work on CLD to also understand how to use the tools. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yogesh has a question, um, which goes back to this uh, involving the community. The question is, did you have any community-owned examples in your study or programs working directly with community institutions? And to me, this terminology is actually interesting. We're talking about community-led development, but Yogesh is asking about community-owned development. Um, uh, Gunjan, do you want to take a first stab at that? Mm -hmm. 
Sure. So the reports that we had, the programs were all submitted by movement members. Uh, and we typically found that, you know, we went to members and we asked them, we went to the local CSOs, but local civil society organizations and a lot of community-based organizations don't have program reports and don't have evaluation reports. And so the set that we ended up with was essentially program reports that were submitted by INGO members mostly, but a lot of those programs were actually done in partnership with community-based organizations and local community organizations. So was there any report in that that was just community-based organizations and no other organization? Not in the subset, no. Uh, but we did try, and that's one of the challenges that we ran up against that they were not accessible. Uh, Charlotte, I agree, this community-owned, very interesting. I, I think a lot of it is, you know, we were just also talking about definitions. So one of the things we realized in the study was how much definitions matter and the kind of words we use. For instance, environment told us that 10% of the programs in the you know, study had environment as a focus area, but it's also how are you defining environment? You know, is sanitation a part of it? Or are we only you know, talking about forests uh, or, you know, uh, Water, what are we talking about when we're talking about environment? And similarly, throughout the report, we found terms like community-based, community-led, community-driven, locally-led. In fact, very few reports actually use the term community-led development. So um, that's a whole area unto itself, the different terms we are using, what they mean, and what they mean to us, not just what they mean to others. You know, How are we using them and towards what end? Thanks. Um, let me turn again to um, to Holta and, and invite Marta to 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 jump in as well. Um, the, the the question is, and, and it's clear to all of us that the research you've done was highly collaborative, uh, which is fantastic. And yet, the question is, was that also difficult? What 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 made that collaborative process uh, perhaps powerful and what made it actually more difficult and, and, and in particular, I think, in terms of disseminating the output of your work? Um, are there difficulties when you're working so collaboratively? When Gunjan contacted me uh, first, I was um, reviewing, I was doing data analysis for a post-program evaluation. So I was deep into like um, what, uh, what has been sustained. We left all of these groups behind, anything has been left, what is the impact of that and so on and so forth. So the topic was right on. So she latched on a lot of passions of the people. I would say that I was one of those recruits, but I found that very soon that the people that I was surrounded were equally passionate. Uh, about and passionate about their sector, but definitely about uh, um, the community-led uh, processes. We come, even though many of us are reside in US, we come from all kinds um, of backgrounds. I'm Albanian. Uh, Gunjan is from uh, India. Um, we, Brigida that uh, Scott mentioned is from Germany. Um, we, Marta is from Ecuador. Um, the group came from everywhere, but the passion was there. That also meant that initially I was recruited for, um, can, you, can you volunteer four hours a month for four months? This is how much it was um, anticipated. Once this, um, this passion ropes you in, we were a year and a half and it was not four hours um, every month that we, uh, that we discussed. 
How was it possible? I, and again, it was fueled by a lot of passion and as well as a lot of experiences. Um, so much debate and discussion um, <laughs> that existed and uh, also a rotation. We rotated a lot of like who could do. Uh, so we catered uh, what, give what you can essentially. I walked out of the group twice. <laughs> And uh, the reason was because my work permit didn't, uh, like the, how much workload I had could not uh, allow me. So I would be like, this is a never ending process. I'm walking out. And then two months later, I would hear the event and I'll, I would be like, I want to come back in. So then there was a pre, uh, place to come back in. We do these presentations on the report um, um, like often, and we also rotate who, uh, who shares. That for me, it's one of the, there is no, like I led the subgroup team, but there is no necessarily one person that uh, can get the mantle of a leader. And I think that that makes what, what makes the collaboration uh, work because everyone is equally uh, gifted to present the work. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Gunjan wants to come in on this. And then I, uh, Scott, I, I see your comment. Um, Scott is, will come back uh, on this question first to Gunjan and then Scott will talk about uh, CLD again in environment focused uh, programs. So first over to you Gunjan. Thank you Charlotte and I just wanted to mention one thing I think what Hulda said one of the things we realized uh, with this research is and I think it speaks a little bit to the point about sustainability that we've often talked about in our programs so I wanted to bring it up. Uh, which was that, you know, for us, the research, I see it as a relay race. It can't be one person or one team that goes from start to finish. It's exhausting. You don't have the time continuously laboring on something, which is a passion project only. But, you know, when you have the pandemic and everything else, it doesn't happen. But you have a group of people, they do one step of it, and then you pass on the beta on to the next team. Not only do you get new ideas, but you also give people the time to energize, you know, to step back, energize, and come back when they are up to it. And I think for us, that is what made the research actually work. Uh, Holter talked about it with an example, but that's just what I wanted to bring in. I think that's what the research has shown us, that collaboration and sustainability, we perhaps need to look at it slightly differently. Thank you for those those I think very honest questions and uh, and and you know your passion really shows uh, but but I I can imagine that uh, fueling things by passion only uh, does get exhausting uh, so Scott uh, I think you wanted to speak a little bit more about CLD in environment focused uh, projects which of course are are of increasing importance. Well, I hadn't really so much to speak, but I did want to make one point that ties into something I said in my discussion comments, which is that there, there already are a lot of programs that work on, on community-led uh, um, environmental management, natural resource management, uh, improving indigenous or supporting indigenous property systems. But I think you have to be careful about not fooling yourself. Um, there's a lot of programs that will do things like clean up the plastics from the, the archipelagos of Southeast Asia. But you, know, you can do that for a long time and communities will enjoy doing it, but it sure would be a lot nicer if that you actually had urban waste systems that weren't letting so much plastic get to the, uh, the beaches in the first place. And I think this is a generic problem that everyone likes to focus on their particular project, whether it's NGO, whether it's donor, uh, donor led, but you actually need strategies that are able to disaggregate into things that are, are you getting the right cause? Is it fitting into something longer term? 
I, I keep noticing in this literature, people asking, well, how do you make it sustainable? Well, you actually can't make it sustainable, right? Whoever makes an education system sustainable, right? Except far right-wingers. But a lot of these things are gonna require a mix of public, private, and community action. And it's that mix that has to matter. It's not, I don't think it's so much that whether one project or another project can do that. And CLD practitioners are just as guilty as everybody else is. But I do wish that the follow-up research starts looking at the strategic questions involved here. Um, and are we getting the causality right of who has to be doing what? Interesting example there on, on, on waste. And, and I'm reminded of Ruth's comments that we perhaps need to be careful that CLD is not seen as a panacea um, and, and that we can't look at these projects in isolation of the broader systems in, in, in the countries in, in which projects are being carried out. Um, now I'd like to, uh, to ask a question to Nea and Ruth. Uh, given that food security is, is very important for the work that we do here at IFPRI, um, did you see anything in this report that caught your attention with regard to CLD related to food security projects? And maybe related to that, how do you see uh, CLD in your own projects focused on, uh, on food security that are being carried out by, by IFCRI? Let's, let's start off with uh, Nea. Thanks, Charlotte. So I, I'll talk about what you asked, uh, the second one, what, what are we doing uh, uh, in our projects? What are we seeing? So um, I've been involved with a project in India where uh, we are working with uh, uh, a large NGO called Pradhan. They um, facilitate women's self-help groups and it is... Uh, community-led, but mostly led by women. So, uh, you know, for us, that's kind of partially community-led. Um, and what they are trying to do is uh, bring awareness among these people about entitlement programs. So, you know, in India, there are a lot of entitlement programs that gives access to food grains. Um, but many people either don't have the information of how to get it. Um, there is also lack of accountability among the local, you know, the, the, the shops which are supposed to be providing. So along with the community and with facilitation from, from the NGO, uh, the women are mobilized and they actually get better. They're better informed about uh, the, the entitlements. And we find in our research that women who are actually members in these groups are more likely to utilize these, these entitlements. So it somehow shows that uh, these kinds of programs can lead to better accountability um, in, in these kinds of settings. So, and, 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 and another project we've seen that in, in addition to food security, there are some areas where they try to make the food basket more nutrition sensitive. So kind of going also taking a step further, making it nutrition sensitive uh, where, you know, the, the food basket is, um, composed of more legumes and less of rice and wheat. Um, so that, that's, that's happening as well. So I'll, I'll pass it on to Ruth. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I work, going back to the issue of environment, or I work a lot on um, natural resource management. I started out the first time I, I worked with Scott, I was studying participatory irrigation management. Uh, and a lot of those, so there is a whole literature on those types of things that are sim similar in many ways to this community-led development. 
But a lot of what was done early on on participatory uh, irrigation management was transferring the responsibilities to communities, but not necessarily the resources to go along with them. I work now closely with Foundation for Ecological Security, another large NGO in India that is working on restoring the commons. And they're struggling with some of these issues on, on how to get full women's participation in these community priority setting uh, events. So that was part of why, where I was coming from in that question. But one of the things that they have done is to say that how can, can communities plug into the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme as a way of funding the labor to improve the irrigation systems, for example, or the watershed, uh, you know, rainwater catchment kinds of things, these labor-intensive activities, instead of being, making them be voluntary, to actually use this government program and, and how to link up these things. So I think Scott was raising something very important about linkage across different types of programs and letting um, the, the community-led also tap into, um, you know, larger other types of resources so that they're not only mobilizing their, volu their voluntary labor. And it's not, you know, and how do we link up these things, I think is a, a really creative um, area to, to explore further. Uh, very good. Thank you to both of you for, for that perspective, for that IFPRI perspective. Um, we're going to end with, uh, with one last uh, question here, um, because I think it, it leads us uh, nicely into thinking about the next steps of, uh, of, this, of this particular report and also what comes next. The question is from John Coonrod. What improvements in the practice of evaluation might shed the light, uh, the most light on CLD? And maybe I'll pass it over to you, Gunjan. Um, sorry, Charlotte, could you repeat the question? Yeah, so the, 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 uh, the, the question is, um, uh, sorry, I have to find it here again. Um, my apologies, I lost oh. your sound for a minute in between. Yeah, no, no worries. So the, the, the question is, what improvements in the practice of evaluation um, might shed the most light uh, on this topic? Thank you. Uh, that is an excellent question. And I think it happens at multiple stages, I, starting with how and why we are doing evaluations and how and why evaluations are being conceptualized, right? I think Scott alluded to it, we found this in our report very, very clearly that currently evaluations are being done to satisfy donor requirements. They're not being done really as learning exercises as they should be. So that, I think that fundamental reason of why evaluations are being done, we need to start with that. But then also the process of how evaluations are done, because if for community-led development, communities take decisions, right? They decide how programs should be, what they should be and implement it. Then they need that information, they need that data, which means they can't just be people who are, you know, from whom we extract data. They have to be involved in the process of what data is collected, what do we care about, you know, what information do we want? How is this data collected? 
And then that information needs to go back to communities. So we actually have, you know, and that's what the evaluation tool, the quality appraisal tool that we have is about. It's about reimagining the way evaluations are being done so that communities are part of the process and are as involved. Until we do that, so that's one aspect of it, I would say. And the final aspect that I want to highlight, and I can go on on this forever because for two years, we've been struggling with this and getting frustrated every time we read an evaluation report of, oh my God, where is CLD in this? Um, is that we have to very consciously look at the processes, you know? So evaluations can't just look at the what. We really need to look at the why and the how what are the processes? What is working? How is it happening? What aspects of CLD? You know, Ruth asked questions uh, in this conversation. Scott talked about the different mechanisms which are at play. We don't have an understanding of those right now, at least from the evaluation reports, because we are not looking for them. We are not evaluating them. And that needs to change. Thanks, Gunjan. Um, let me uh, inform all of you uh, on this call that there is an opportunity to provide some, some feedback and reactions to this landscape study. I think we've got a slide up so that you know how to submit your comments. And you can do so until uh, April 15th. Let's see if we can get that slide up. <clears throat> So uh, the, the, um, we'll very much look forward to your feedback on this report and we'll get you that information on, on how to submit it. And I think, you know, as has been very clear throughout these presentations, this is in fact a very participatory uh, process. So, and, and we greatly appreciate all the questions that have come in from, from all of you. And, and I'm, I'm just sorry that we didn't get to all of them. It seems to me this is such a rich topic that we could do a whole, a series of seminars on it. Um, but I, for one, certainly think we should reconvene here at IFPRI, uh, maybe in person uh, by the time we get to this, when you do your impact uh, work. And I think it will be really interesting for us then and, and very appropriate for us then to involve the voices from the community for, for, for that event. So let me thank all of the, all of those that were here to present the report, but also the many other people that are behind this report for, I think, doing a real service to, to the development community. And we'll, we'll continue to follow this with a lot of interest. Many thanks to, to the discussants um, and to Ruth for helping to, to kick things off. A great thanks to uh, IFPRI's uh, event management team and in closing, let me just bring your attention to the next seminar that we have uh, coming up. And I mentioned earlier IFPRI's Global Food Policy Report. Well, that report, which, which looks at uh, the impacts of COVID and, and lessons that we can learn from COVID when it comes to food systems transformation. The, the global launch of that report will take place um, on April 13th. So many thanks to all of you and have a good rest of your day or evening, wherever you may be. Thanks so much.